We start at Hebrews chapter 6. And if we were to summarize just the first beginning of Hebrews 6, verse uh, 1 through 8 and 9 included, is that we saw that the idea or the belief or the position that if you were, if you are one of God's children, if you have been redeemed by him, forgiven by him, adopted into his family, justified by his grace, you cannot ever lose your salvation. You are forever in the mighty hands of God, and he will not lose grip of your soul. At the same time, there is no such thing as once saved, always saved. And you say, Tim, you just contradicted yourself. Instead, Scripture presents to us the biblical belief that God's saints, his children, will persevere to the end. That's called the perseverance of the saints. His children will be identified outwardly by their works and service towards God and be noticed and recognized for their love of God, their forgiveness of others, their ability to control the temptation in their lives through the Holy Spirit, and their love of all things Jesus. It will become evident and obvious, and it will grow stronger and stronger until the Lord brings us to the full realization of our absolute perfect glory and majesty on the day of that last resurrection. So we will persevere to the end, and God will not lose us ever. We cannot even lose ourselves and jump out of his hands of protection, his hands of mercy, and his hands of forgiveness. Once he has adopted us into his family, that is set in stone. It cannot be changed. Cannot be changed. Eternity cannot change it. Heaven and earth cannot change it. The strongest of temptations cannot change it. The most difficult of trials cannot change it. Your most desperate moment where you feel hopeless before God cannot change the fact that if you are his son and daughter, you are forever his son and daughter. Don't be misled. Don't be deceived that you are the one holding on to your own salvation, that it's all up to you, that if you only do good enough, God will reward you with salvation. That is not salvation. That's works. That's earning merit before God. And God never allows his glory to be shared with anyone, including us. But the warning there in chapter 6 is real. The warning is there to remind us and to spur us onto thinking, Lord, am I in your family or am I not? Because when I sin, I feel very distant from you, as we should. But there are ways in which we can kind of, uh, and I hate to use this because it's such a buzzy kind of word right now with a lot of misunderstanding, self-evaluate. Where do we stand with God and where do we stand with others? And so after that incredible encouragement in the beginning of uh, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, we reach to verse 9 through 12 and we see what genuine faith really looks like. 
how active it is, how real it is, how it's not just sit back and just kind of wait for things to happen, and it doesn't matter what I do because I'm one of God's children, I'm saved. It doesn't matter what I do, how I love, how I feel, how I forgive, how I worship God, none of that matters. I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. These verses need to reassure you that the Christian life is not passive, that we don't just simply come to the realization I'm one of God's children and then we don't do anything else. Because, Pastor, you've already told us that I can't jump out of God's hand. He will never lose grip of me. That's true. But those that are in his hands, those that he has hold of, are identifiable. They're noticeably different than the world. Now, he starts in verse 9 and says, and I'm going to read these few verses. Though we speak in this way, and the writer is referring to the beginning of chapter 6, this idea of once I've had some of this experience and I fall away, there's no salvation for me. Though we speak in this way, yet, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation, things that really do accompany salvation. And if there was one thing that accompanies salvation more than anything else, it is the relationship that God has with you and the relationship you then have with him. Salvation is about a relationship, not what do I get, but about who am I in this relationship with? Who is this relationship with? And that is God. And how do I get into that relationship? And I know this is very, very basic, but who, how do I get into that relationship with God? What other name under heaven and earth must one call upon in order to be saved but Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ, he's focal, he's center. He is absolutely essential and necessary and pivotal. He is the one who my eyes must be attached to and my heart must be bare before and say, you and you alone must bring me into a relationship with the Father. You establish it, you continue it, you maintain it. You make it possible, you make it real, and you make it forever. This Jesus, God's Son, the high priest, the sacrifice, the prophet, the king, the one who is after the order of Melchizedek. Things that belong to salvation. And then he goes on in verse 10 to 12 to kind of explain some of these things. He says, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you'll still do. So the author says, in all of this gloriousness about things that belong to salvation and the relationship that we have in God, there still is a noticeable eye upon what you think, say, or do. God knows everything that's going on in your life. He sees it. He recognizes it. And that's why he can say on that day of glory when he separates the sheep from the goat in Matthew 20, he goes, I recognize that you were there giving me a cup of water when I was in prison, that you were there giving me food when I was hungry. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I had nowhere, you brought me in. See, God does notice your actions. He notices your work. He notices your attitude in all of that. And he notices your thinking in everything. He notices everything. Does that just kind of for a moment 
make you a little bit uneasy? I think it does for me in a healthy way, in a good way, in a way of knowing I can't get away with anything, God. My entirety is revealed to you. While you may be able to hide it from everybody else and everyone else think that you are a different person, yet on the inside, God knows exactly who you are, which means I can be real with him. I can confess to him. Nothing is going to surprise him. If you say, Tim, I'm struggling with this, it may surprise me. In looking at your life, I may go, wow, I never realized that about you. Now, in another sense, it won't surprise me because I've heard everything under the sun. But with God, even though you may have a beautiful face and facade of character before the world and before those at church, God knows you intimately revealed and naked before him. Absolutely bare. This is me. He goes, I know exactly who you are. That relieves from me that pressure of having to pretend before God. And I can just simply say, okay, I am who I am before you, Father. You see me as I truly am. Let's get on with confessing and changing what needs to be changed so that I might reveal to the world around me the relationship I have with you through Christ by my love for you and my love for others. He continues and says in verse 11, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have full assurance of hope until the end. So the author is desiring that not just the Christians that he was writing to, but to us as well, that we would show the same sense of urgent earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. He wants us to dive into these things and say, Lord, I want to know more about this. I want to be right before you. I definitely want to have that relationship front and center and not my good works. But I know that you're going to look at my good works and it's going to be revealed on the last day. But my relationship with you is not based on good works. It's based on the work of Christ. But I know you're going to invest your all-seeing eye into everything I do. And the author says you need to be earnest for that. You need to be expecting that. You need to be gravitating towards that. That needs to be one of your passions and desires. Lord, let's see what that relationship unfolds and reveals. Because it's going to be different every day. Because every day God will reveal to you more and more of what needs to be refined, of what needs to be sacrificed to him, of what needs to be given up. And that should be an earnest, active pursuit all the way until the end. Until we pursue no further in this life and we go home and we are at comfort and rest. And then all of those things that we believed in God's promises are yes and amen. They are true. They are absolutely spot on and right. And we do this for a purpose and a reason. And that purpose and a reason is revealed in verse 12. All of this is happening. That we know that God doesn't overlook our works, that uh, in his name we serve the saints, that we desire each of you to have earnestness and that full assurance to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Let 
Laziness. Laziness. Now, real quick, you may think that you're a workaholic, okay? You know some people who are just working, 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 you're thinking to yourself, there's no possibility, they don't have time to be lazy. Have you known people like that? They don't have time to be lazy. This is not talking about how active you are, because you could be super active and still be absolutely sluggish and lazy when it comes to the relationship you have with God. I know people that work so much that they go, oh, pastor, I I can't make it to church, I gotta work. Well, can you you get together for coffee? We'll talk spiritual. No, 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 I gotta work. And all it is is work, 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 work. And you would think that's the least lazy person there is you've ever met. But when it comes to their relationship with God, building it and trusting in it and hoping in it, they are absolutely lazy because they fill their time with so many other things they have no time for God to work on what really needs to be worked on is their relationship. So just because someone is very active and working does not mean at the heart of their spiritual life it is laziness. And so the author says, I say all these things, maybe to scare you, maybe to motivate you, maybe to get you off of your seat spiritually with God, because we have a problem with the potential of being lazy when it comes to our spiritual lives. We're so busy we can't pray. We're so busy we can't read God's word. We are so busy we can't gather with the saints. We are so busy we can't serve. We are so busy we can't work. And the one thing God says is essential for you to work on, your relationship with him. And that spills over to your relationship with others. They're combined. You know what's uh, pretty interesting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Good works is not a bad word. Just because the relationship you have with the Father is based on the work of Christ, not your own work. Just because faith itself is a gift and not of your own works. And just because you persevere to the end because of the power of Jesus Christ and his spirit doesn't mean you can just simply give up and not care about working on that relationship with God. You must, and to the point that even Jesus says, the whole purpose of that, when they see your good works, whatever value you may give as volunteers or as tithers or givers, whatever that may be, all of that should point to Christ, not to a plaque with your name on it. I've told you this before. I was in a church serving and ministering on Sundays as a student preacher And everything in that church had a plaque. Remember that story? Even the offering plate had someone's name on it in memory of it. And every time that plate came by, I thought it was giving to Joe Smith. Everything, every seat in front of you had a plaque on it. The doors had plaques. Everything had plaques. I mean, when you get to the point you got to put a plaque on offering plates, you know you've gone too plaguey, way too much. I, I made that up. And the focus was so much on, look at what my grandfather did. My dad did this. My grandfather did this. My uncle did this. My aunt did this. My cousin did this. My kids did this. And everything was on them. Everything focused on them. And Jesus says, in a mature 
growing Christian relationship with the Father, you'll have all of those things that are plaque-worthy, but only one plaque matters to you, to the glory of God alone. Sola de gloria, to God's glory alone. You serve for God's glory alone. You love for God's glory alone. You forgive for God's glory alone. You befriend others for God's glory alone. You come to church for God's glory alone. You worship him in praise for God's glory alone. You pray to him for his glory. You read his word for his glory. You give, you serve. You sacrifice yourself, pick up the cross and carry it and follow Christ for his glory. Human accolades, pats on the back, don't matter. Don't matter. Yeah, they feel good. They appeal sometimes to a sense of pride. But in the end, true humility, knowing your relationship with the Father is based on Christ, all of those good, good works should point and shine to God's glory. You bring him notice. You bring him recognition. You bring him accolades and pats on the back. Because everything we do, whether it's worship, pray, read, wake up in the morning, get safely back and from an appointment, the ability that we have clothes to wear in a closet that seems overflowing, not knowing what to have to lunch, for lunch because you are just so, there's so many options. All points to God's blessing in your life. And yes, you've worked for it, humanly terms, bought it, but it all points back to it's because of God in my life. And sometimes God brings that blessing to a person's life even if they don't acknowledge him, even if they reject him, refuse him, deny him. God continues to say, but I am the provider and one day this will be held against you because you refuse to acknowledge me as Lord and Savior. You know, it's uh, pretty interesting in the book of Revelation. Jesus writes those seven letters to the seven churches. And in those seven letters, five of the seven times, five of the seven times, Jesus says to that church, I know your works. I know your works. And then he goes on, some praising him or praising them and some being very disciplinary and spanking them into, uh-oh, I better change the way I think and act. But he says to five of the seven, I know your works. Your active Christian faith is noticeable to God and he recognizes it and he looks for it. Oh, so that begs the pastoral preaching question of the day. What does he notice in you? Not what do you tell people or what do you show people, but what does he notice in you? If he was to write a letter to you and say, hey, I know your works, and then he talked about them, what would they be? just got real. But that's what the book of Hebrews is trying to impress upon us, that the relationship we have with the Father is real. It's not just an hour a week. It's not just five minutes a day. It is real forever. 
in eternity. I know your works. Might scare some people. Might get people out of being lazy and sluggish in their relationship with God. But for the mature believer, it's comforting. It's absolutely comforting. Because he knows my failings and my successes. That doesn't change his opinion of me. It doesn't change his relationship with me. He doesn't decide one day he's had too much and gives up on me. He holds me through every moment of failure and success the same. Because my relationship with him is not based on works, but it's based on whom? Jesus. It's based on how good of a job Jesus did. And how good of a job did he do? Paid it all. He paid all the debt, all the sin, all the failings, all the failures. He paid it all, and he paid it perfectly. So as long as the son is the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect son, the perfect savior, the perfect Lord, the perfect worker, the perfect prayer, prayer, the perfect all things God, then our salvation is secure absolutely secure. And I don't know about you, but as I read about Jesus in Scripture and have experienced him in my life, I have no doubt he is perfect at what he does. No failing, no weakness, no uncertainty, no doubt that he is absolutely who he says he is and he's accomplished everything he said he was going to accomplish perfectly. Perfectly. And that perfectness moves in to the last section in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 through 20, that talks about the absolute certainty we can have in this relationship with the Father through the work of the Son. He says in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, way back in Genesis chapter 22, way back then, since he had no one greater whom to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purses, purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. All of this is saying is that when God made a promise to Abraham, how did Abraham know that it was going to come true? And the story is, there's no way God could know, or there's no way Abraham could know outside of God said it, and he's God. And so it will happen because there is no other greater authority that God can talk about than himself. That's not like us. In our context, if we really, really, really want to convince someone that what we're telling them is true, we go to the ultimate. Put your hand on the Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And if you say, I swear on the Bible, oh, that's, that should be like the ultimate authority that we might have. 
Some might swear on their mother. That's a pretty high authority. Some might um, swear by some city or some special object. Of course, God reveals to us through Christ that this whole oath-taking, while we can take oaths and be held accountable, he says our yes should be yes and our no should be no. We should be known enough by our character that if I say yes, it's going to be yes. If it's no, it's going to be no. I don't need to swear by anyone, by anything. And that's how God approached it. God didn't have to put his hand on the Bible and swear by his mother or swear on, on Scripture. He took his yes for yes and no for no. And how do we know his yes is yes and his no is no? It tells us. Verse uh, 17 when, so when God declared to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is one impossible for God to lie and two, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Two beautiful things happen in there. One, we're told God cannot lie. Do we have a problem lying to each other? Absolutely. Let's be honest. If you lied about that, just proves my point. We all have a problem of showing ourselves to be greater than what we truly are to impress others. Or to soften bad news and so we lie around it. Not so with God. God doesn't lie. And the fact that he does not lie should motivate us to that one thing talked about in verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So we can look at his promises. We can look at his word, and we can run to it with assurance and certainty. We have a bit of a problem in our English language with the word hope. We think, and, and, and rightly defined in the English language, hope means I wish. I hope they win next year. I hope they do better next year. I hope I get a raise. I hope this, I hope that. And when we say that, we're using the word correctly in English, we're kind of wishing that happens or that there's more evidence that it may happen than it may not happen. In Greek, the word hope is only a noun, not a verb. In English, it's a verb and a noun, and sometimes it can be an adjective, but that's very rare cases. But in Greek, it is a noun. It is an absolute certainty without any qualification. It is. And they just use the word hope in order to describe our connection with it. We rest in it. We trust it. We know this will take place. There is more certainty for the believer that we will be raised in Christ, then the sun will rise tomorrow. Is it possible that the sun will not rise tomorrow? Is it possible? Yeah, of course it's possible. It happened twice in Scripture already when God stopped the sun or the rotation of the earth, and it didn't rise that morning for the other side of the world. It could stop. It could not rise. I hope it does. I'd love to have another day. I'd love to have morning again. I hope. It's a really good certainty that it will. But it really is just a, based on past experiences. I, I hope it will. Good certainty it will. Yes, 
Really, 99.9% sure it will. That wishing is not present with God's relationship with us. We don't have to wish that it would happen or, or bank on it or, or somehow have a 99.999% certainty that God will fulfill his promises. God doesn't lie. So when he says this, it will be this. When he says, I love you and I will not forsake you, he loves you and will not forsake you. When he says, I hold you in my hand and nothing can grab you out, you can guarantee that. When he says, I will be with you and I will raise you up on the last day, where I am, you will be. We can have more than a wish that it will happen. It is a certainty that it will happen. And then he goes on in verse 19 and 20 to conclude this. He says, we have this, a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. If you want to know the surety of what this relationship with the Father is and why hope is not just a wish, God says it's like this. It's like an anchor holding fast a ship. And spiritually, it's like Jesus walking straight into the Holy of Holies and making it right and tearing down that wall of separation, the curtain splitting in two, and him standing as the prophet, priest, and king as mysteriously as Melchizedek came on the scene for Abraham. So mysteriously, Jesus stands as the only mediator between God and man. And God could have done it so many different ways, but he chose this way because it brought him the most glory, the most glory, to see his son sacrificed, to see his son born, to see his son be the prophet, priest, and king that would end all other ways of trying to reach out to God only through him. And we can believe that. We can have assurance. We can take hold of it and say, all right, God, if you've got this part taken care of, if you've got my life in your hand and my soul redeemed, if you've got forgiveness and love and mercy taken care of, if righteousness is taken care of, if my future is taken care of and my present is taken care of, what do you want of me then? What does he want of us? Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that the power of the Holy Spirit in you may abound in hope. He wants you to be so energized with confidence that God knows exactly what he's doing and I can have full assurance married with hope and peace. Having that joy overfilling me. Having a sense of rightness. Having a sense of it's okay. Not ignoring the world, but engaging it without fear. Because God has empowered me to live without fear.
live without despair, and to live with joy, hope, and peace. As I pray, I want us to remind ourselves of that connection we have with God because we have that relationship on full display this morning in communion. We have the brokenness of Christ, the shedding of his blood. We have the entirety of what Christ was working towards right here. And if you need hope or joy or peace or some sense of encouragement by God, then this is where he says we can come and see it visibly before us, that he really does want to give us assurance, that he wants us to know that he is an anchor of hope for us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. Lord, fill us with joy and hope. May we find that peace that surpasses all understanding, and may you, Father, enliven us with a love for you and hope that is not just wishing, but absolute full assurance. In your son's name I pray, amen. We're going to sing this last song. We're introducing a new song that is on the topic of communion. It's called Remembrance. Um, we're doing this this month, and we're doing it next month in preparation for a service that we're going to be doing right before Easter. So we're going to be doing a Maundy Thursday service focusing on the communion, uh, the Last Supper, uh, and we're going to be just getting together 
uh, focusing on that, learning about that, and singing songs together. Um, and then this is one of those songs, so we just wanted to introduce it now. As you finish up, would you guys stand with us? Come to your table. 
Christ's name, God bless. Have a great week, everyone. Drive safely and enjoy this beautiful snow. It will be gone probably Tuesday. Bye. Or maybe tomorrow. Tonight. <laughs> Sweet.